0: Thought evolutionists, have you been staring at the clock lately, waiting for time to pass you by because something felt meaningless, redundant, or boring? Hi, I'm your host, Stefan Dubier, and I'm so glad you are here. Imagine this, my dear friends. You go to the doctor for a routine checkup. You're stuck in traffic, 30, 40 minutes gone, just getting to your appointment. Then, after you are finally checked in, You're being told by a medical professional that from now on, you are running out of time. Because you're suffering from a terminal illness and you only have months, weeks, days left to live. How would that realization affect you? I mean, we all know that life is not endless for any of us, right? We know it, but what do we do about it? How many episodes of your favorite TV show have you binged? instead of playing dress-up with your kids or reading them a bedtime story, making memories that will last them for their whole lives? How many years have you given to a company in a job that perhaps at least pays the bills but leaves you sad and unfulfilled? How often have you looked at your life thinking, I wish I could do something else. I wish I could be somebody else. Moments later we brush it all off and settle for what doesn't really fulfill us and grudgingly accept life as it is. We tell ourselves there's always tomorrow. Perhaps our time to change something just hasn't come yet. We put things off and put them off and put them off. And then suddenly we're too old or too sick to pursue the dreams and plans we've carried within us the entire time. My guest Jen understands the limits of life She has seen homelessness take away the safety and comfort her home had provided for her and her family, and she was given a terminal illness diagnosis that changed everything. Within seconds of a doctor uttering the most dreaded words one can imagine, every moment suddenly became essential. Living became a daily gift, and surviving got a whole new meaning. While others strive to accomplish what we often think of as the big goals, careers, money, fame, whatever, Jen's biggest accomplishment is that she is still here. And instead of the terminal illness robbing her of every ounce of happiness, it actually managed to make her relationships stronger and better because her friendships are what truly carried her through. Jen is here to talk about her ultra rare disease, but honestly, She's mostly here to talk about the actual meaning of life, and how life not being endless allowed her to celebrate the rareness and beauty of it. Let's welcome Jen. I'm so, 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 so happy she's here with us, and that she's giving us all some of the precious time that she has to share her story. Trigger warning. This episode contains conversations about trauma, terminal illness, homelessness, suicide, death, and depression. If any of these subjects are a trigger to you, please prioritize your mental health and skip this episode. Hi, Jen. Thank you so much for being here to talk to us today. I'm wondering what your plans are for this weekend. Anything interesting going on in your corner of the world?
1: Thank you so much for having me. This weekend is going to be quiet. Today, I get to sit down and talk to you, which I have been so excited to do. And then tonight, I am actually going to a mother's retreat. It is for women only. And it's just a few hours where these groups of people focus on moms and allowing them to kind of have a break, be fed, and have fun together. So I'm going to do that this evening. And then I think that's all my weekend has.
0: A mother's retreat sounds very cool. Now, I know, obviously, that you are a very proud mama bear. And rightfully so, of course. Tell us about your kids and feel free to brag a little or a lot.
1: So I am a mom. I have two amazing children and two bonus children that I get to love. The first two are wonderful young ladies that unfortunately don't live near us, but we try and be involved with. They came with my husband and I love them to bits. And then we have my monkeys. I was in a unique position that my children were born almost eight years apart. So my oldest, Jack, is 19 currently, and my baby is 11. And I get to experience life with them. And I can tell you, life with children with that big age span is quite interesting.
0: That's a very interesting scenario you have there. So what made you wait Eight years between child number one and child number two.
1: So honestly, I had to kiss a lot of frogs before I got to where I am now. I had my first child in my early 20s and quickly realized that I was going to be doing it on my own. I made the decision then and there that he would be my only child because I wanted, as a single mother, to be able to provide and focus on him. And then when he was six, I had met my current husband. And we ended up getting married and wanted to finish our family with one more.
0: Your kids, just like you, went through some really rough times and were confronted with homelessness. What led to you losing your home? And how did you and your family cope with the fact that you would have to make it without the shelter a home provides?
1: So yes, we have experienced homelessness. Unfortunately, our story starts in... November of 2021, my husband started experiencing some pretty difficult things with his mental health. We started therapy, we started seeking help and all of that, and it just wasn't working. He unfortunately, at that time, was placed on short term disability for work due to severe mental health concerns. And for anyone who knows how short term disability works, You can wait months for your first paycheck. And unfortunately, our family had to learn that the hard way. By December, we were struggling. We hadn't seen an income in approximately six weeks, and things were just getting difficult. I was doing everything I could to hold it together. I was meeting with social workers, I was going to a food bank to try and feed my family, and we were trying everything. By December, of 2021, we were visiting some people and my husband had another mental breakdown, unfortunately, on our wedding anniversary. That led to the difficult decision that he was unable to make for himself. So I had to make, we lived in that situation for approximately two weeks where he was in the hospital getting help. And I was just trying to hold on Pay bills as I could, but when you have an income of zero, there's no money to pay out. So we became behind. Finally, his disability paid out while he was in the hospital, and I was able to start paying things off and taking care of the things I needed to take care of. And so he came home from the hospital, and we were trying to find therapists. And unfortunately, the first doctor that he was sent to had a habit of telling males with mental health problems. Well, if you're still alive next time you come here, then maybe we'll think of a better plan. So that was a hit and set us back months where we were trying to find someone, anyone to help us. We were getting further and further behind because we were still trying to pay off old bills and new bills. And he could not go back to work because his mental health was in such a bad place. Eventually, the short-term disability ended, and the difficult decision was made that he could no longer return to that job because mentally he was not able to handle it at that time. So that kind of happened and shifted a lot. We were really struggling. Again, we were back to a zero income. He was door dashing sometimes 16, 18 hours a day just to try and pay the bills. But when you have a family of four living in a home... DoorDash doesn't make enough money to pay all those bills and still provide. So finally, in May, things kind of came to a head, we shall say. It was a quiet morning. It was really early in the morning. I had woken up and it was maybe 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. And I was just enjoying the quiet. And my husband was DoorDashing and I received a text from my husband's phone. And that text simply was a video where it told me where I could find my husband's body. In that moment, my entire world broke. I remember sitting there and not knowing what to do. I tried to call him. I tried to text him and discovered his phone was turned off. He was door dashing. I didn't know anything was wrong. So I quickly realized I had to do something And I called 911 and I spoke to an amazing dispatcher who quickly worked on everything. She was wonderful. She took all information and told me that the police would be coming to my home immediately and that they were going to take. I played the video for her. She heard everything that was said to me so that they knew where to look and then started the longest 25 minutes of my life. In that 25 minutes, my children woke up. And I had to explain to a 17 year old boy. No, he had just turned 18. So, an 18 year old boy and a nine year old little girl what was going on. And that was hard. Thankfully, my son's girlfriend was with him at that time. And she quickly grabbed my daughter and took her out of the way so that when the police showed up, I could deal with the police. And that's kind of. The first policeman that I had contact with that day was one of the most amazing men I have ever met. He came and got out of his car and I was sitting outside to not upset my children. And I was crying and just the compassion he had. He told me that that was not his call to take, but that he had requested it because he had lost a family member to suicide. And he had decided then that If their mother call comes, he wants to be there to support the family. So he came as a caring and attentive person. He was able to help me start to calm down and relax. And then while we were sitting, his radio cracked. And that's when I heard the words, we have him. He is alive and okay. And what I didn't realize was that my son was standing on the other side of the door so that I had my chance. And he heard that because I heard him break down. I heard the gasp because of relief. And then it became, now what do we do? So it was quickly going from those horrible moments to, I have to hurry up and get to the hospital and meet him and deal with this. And so I literally remember, and my children were laughing in their, through their tears. It was kind of one of those moments where you look back and you're like, why did I do that? Once the officer told me where he would be, and I realized that it was literally about five blocks from my house, I looked at my son and I said, watch your sister. I'll be right back. And I start running down the street. I don't drive. So that's common. I walk everywhere. My son's girlfriend comes chasing me down the street, screaming, I have a car. I have a car. Get in the car. So they thought it was kind of funny that I was in such a hurry that I didn't even think to use the person who had a car. So I had finally gotten to the hospital that day. And thankfully, of course, I was all over the place when I got there. I was scared. I was confused. I was. My mind was going a million miles a minute. And I remember I walked in and the security guard looks at me and it was early in the morning. They were dead. And he goes, are you okay? And I said, No. And I gave my husband's name and he went and checked and he came out and he was the kindest security guard. He looked at me and he said, you're not allowed back there. Unfortunately, I can tell you that it may be a week or two before you actually get to see your husband at all. And that threw me for a loop because I just wanted to see his face. I just wanted to know he was okay, but they wouldn't let me because of rules that were in place to protect him. So this wonderful security guard leaves. And then he comes back a few minutes later and he goes, we know it's really hard that you can't see him, but this is a police officer who met him and who has spent the last 40 minutes with your husband. And he wants to tell you that he's going to be okay. And you were able to get him help in time. And then the police officer looked at me and said, You did the right thing. You saved him. And when someone says something to you like that, there's a deep breath and a sigh and the realization that you were given another day with a person you love more than life. And it's amazing. So I started advocating, started fighting for him. He was in the hospital for a week and he returned home. And we still had no income. We were still struggling. And he returned home. And within about Three hours of returning home, we realized that the hospital pushed him out when he was not ready. So we did what I felt I had to do, and I made dinner for my family. We sat together, we ate, we enjoyed some time together. He spent time with our children, and then he hugged the children goodbye, and we went back to the hospital where we requested more support and more help. Honestly, in the hospital, we didn't get much of any support or help other than a few key people that were placed in his life during that time that really mean a lot. So he comes home after about two and a half weeks of being in the hospital total, and we're struggling. And the day he gets home from the hospital, we had a pay up or vacate the premises notice. We were behind in rent. I'm not going to lie. You can't pay rent when you have zero income. So we were dealing with that. We started doing everything that we were told by the social workers and the lawyers to do. We did multiple court appearances, and it kept getting pushed off. Our first appearance was in July. And mind you, during this time, we're still going through him trying to stabilize his mental health. Tons and tons of therapy and programming. And then he got a job in the summer and we went to court and we proved that, you know, he was working, we were trying to make a plan while the landlord just didn't want it anymore. And that's his choice. So we kept fighting because one lawyer was going back and forth saying that, you know, we didn't pay all these months until finally the judge realized that it was a bad situation, but not what they were originally told. So we fought it for quite a few months. And then in November, you know, we're still trying to get right. And the judge finally decided that, you know, we did owe him and we were still trying to pay it off. And he was refusing money at that point. We couldn't even pay him what we owed him. He refused it. So we were evicted and we're given 21 days to move.
0: 21 days. 21 days to completely rearrange your life, to try and come up with a solution, with a new place to live. What went through your heads during those 21 days? What were those 21 days like? And what was the ultimate result after the 21 days had passed?
1: So the day that was decided was the beginning of November. It was actually November 1st. So we were given, or sorry, November 2nd, because we were given the move date. We had to vacate by November 21st. We had to be gone. That's our family, our animals, everything. So we we had already been working with social workers at that point, trying to find a better plan. But unfortunately, in my area, there is a stopgap. There is a huge, huge gap where people are falling in. They can help you try and save your home. And we did that. We did all the steps. We worked with the social worker. We got the funding. The landlord didn't want the money. So we started working with social workers. We were able to line up that if we could find a place, they would help us get into it. Well, guess what? There's no available rentals anywhere in our city. Our city is like many cities right now where there's just nothing available and the things that are available are extremely out of reach for a family who is struggling. During that 21 days, what people need to understand is that it was me. I was the one taking care of everything because not long before then, my husband had decided to take on a second full-time job to try and find a way to pay the bills and save us. So I was every morning, I was out between 5 and 6 a.m. I would, on the days I had to go to the food bank, I would go to the food bank and I would get some help there because we were doing what we were told. Every penny we had was going to these bills, every penny. So I was meeting social workers. I was looking at places. We got a place we were supposed to move in. And then the guy gave it to someone else who offered them more money, which is another problem we're having in this area. So we had nowhere. During that time, our 18-year-old had sat down with us and decided that him and his girlfriend were going to move away and start their own lives. So I had these big feelings. Not only am I losing the safety and security of my home, my firstborn child is leaving me for the first time. And my kids were always with me. I I was a mom that loved being a mom. I was the one that, oh no, have your friends over here. I'll cook dinner. I'll do this. So I felt like I was losing everything, safety, security, my home, and one of my children. So he had left one week before we had to be out because of his situation and moving. He was moving far away. And the person who was helping him move could only come the weekend before. So he left. And then that final week was just packing, organizing, scrambling. We had two dogs we had to find temporary care for. We had a cat. And upon talking to the social workers, we quickly realized that there's no help for us. We could go to a shelter, but the shelter that was available, it was used for anyone and everyone. And I was warned at that time, they unfortunately had a high amount of violent and sexual offenders in that shelter. I'm a mom of an 11-year-old little girl. I'm not bringing her to somewhere dangerous. So that became not an option. We were able to find a cheap hotel in our town. And at the rate of like 80 some dollars a night, we put everything we could into five nights in a hotel, just somewhere so we could be safe. Because again, it was just going to be me and my daughter because my husband was working two full-time jobs. He worked nights at one job and days at another and slept in between. The week... On the weekend, we had packed everything on the Saturday. We had rented a U-Haul, brought everything to storage, locked everything up in storage. An amazing friend ended up coming and offering to take our boys, or dogs. And he came the day we moved to the U-Haul. He showed up with a whole bunch of our friends from our church. And they were moving and packing and just, they were holding me up. We arrived at the hotel Saturday night, and Thursday of that week was Thanksgiving. And the part that makes it hard was my daughter was born on Black Friday, so her birthday is the day after Thanksgiving. So I had to move her to a shelter five days before her birthday, six days before her daddy's birthday. So we did that, and we got to the hotel, and we made it work. And We did everything we could just to be able to afford a couple more nights at the hotel. Every time we'd get money, it would be a couple more nights put on the hotel bill to just stretch it out. We were coming up into Christmas. It was almost Christmas. And a very dear friend of my husband's from one of his jobs was taking care of my cat. And she said to us that reality was we couldn't afford to stay in the hotel much longer. We weren't eating every day because money went to food for our kid and keeping a roof over our heads. So she kindly offered to allow us to come and stay in her home. She had a four-bedroom home just for herself as a single woman. So days before Christmas, we moved into this home, which was going to just be temporary. We were going to help her with rent until we could figure a better plan. By the end of January, we were all happy with the situation. It worked well for us. So we had decided to stay here permanently.
0: I'm very, very sorry to hear this, Jen. And I'm very sorry for all the people out there who are experiencing homelessness in, let's face it, the the richest country on earth. What are some lessons homelessness taught you about yourself and others?
1: This whole... Experience has taught me to be kinder, to be gentler. We don't know what another person is going through. I have a picture that was taken on my wedding anniversary a year and a half ago. And everyone looks at that picture and says, You don't look at it very often. You keep it away, but you still take it out and look at it sometimes. But you guys look rough. We had a smile on our face. But if you look behind those tired, sad eyes, you will understand that only a few hours before, my husband had struggled with wanting to end his life again. So we put on a mask. So I've learned to be kinder to people because we we don't know what's what they face. We don't know if like people laugh because a person's whole day can crumble from one minor thing going wrong. One minor little thing can make a person's entire day crumble. But who are we to judge? We don't know that She went to the nail salon and spent her last money to get her nails done, and they didn't turn out right. And it broke her. We don't know why. So that really made me think, people need to be kinder. We need to accept that, yes, we can easily pace a fake smile on our faces and pretend the world is perfect, when in reality, our dumpster is on fire.
0: Sadly, your dumpster was not only on fire once. You also saw yourself facing an Impossibly difficult diagnosis. Before we talk about your world shattering, what led to you being diagnosed in the first place?
1: We were living the normal life. My husband was working out of town primarily for work. He would come home on weekends and be gone during the week. I was home. Both my children were in school for the first time, full time, every day. I had a baby in kindergarten. My son had just started high school. I was happy. They were happy we were living the light. It was the American dream. And then funny things started happening. I started falling. I started being confused. And when I say confused, I don't mean slightly. I mean, words were getting mixed up. But more so than that, there was one day that kind of made my husband question what was going on because I called him angry and upset. The kids were at school. I wasn't feeling the best. So I took a nap that morning after the kids left. And I woke up and I called my husband angry. I was trying to leave my house to go find a restaurant. And I wanted a very specific restaurant. And I'm trying to explain to him where this restaurant was. And he stopped me and asked me, when the last time I had gone there or what I, when I used to go there. And I said, you know, I went there all the time. Jack used to love it there when he was a baby. Well, Jack's a teenager now and we live about 21 hours from where Jack was born. I didn't clue in. My brain wasn't registering the fact that we didn't live there anymore. I just, I woke up and I, I, I was confused. So my husband's like, Meh, maybe you're just getting old. It was a joke. I mean, I'm two and a half years older than him. So he thought it was funny. So we did what any smart person would do. We called my wonderful primary care physician and she started running tests. And in running all of these tests, things started kind of giving mild warning signs that there was more to it. But we were pretty confident that we were going to see this amazing urologist out of the Greenville hospital system. And we were going to see him. He's one of the best. He's great. But his specialty is multiple sclerosis. My doctor felt that was the best move for us to see him. And I was okay with that because I had worked with people with MS for years of my life. And I was very familiar with the disease. And I could see a lot of Parallels and similarity. So I'm doing these tests, and I'm getting MRIs on my brain. I'm doing seizure tests. I'm doing sleep studies. I'm doing all of this, and you know we're going back and forth. My husband's traveling for work. He's trying to be home when he can. Around that time, he decided to move home permanently because I needed help. So that was a wonderful transition that this brought. Was we went from him working away from home most of our marriage to him being home every night. So we're doing the test. We're doing everything. I'm feeling horrible. I'm, It's getting worse. And then we see our first something real was wrong when I couldn't stop having seizures. So we continued. We had went, we started testing in the summer and we're pushing and pushing. And it literally took until March.
0: Now, take a deep breath and take us back with you to that dreadful, awful moment in time when being sick and being concerned became being terminally ill. How did you find out and what was your initial reaction to it all?
1: We did all the tests. We did everything we were told. I went through months and months of crazy things that I never thought would happen. They put needles into my muscles and zap them like a mini taser. I can tell you that is not a pleasant feeling. So finally, the big day came. All of our test results should be in. The doctor should have them. Let's go. Let's do this. We get in the car and we make the 45-minute drive from our home to the doctor's office. And we're playing my favorite song get up. And we're like, it's okay. It's just going to be MS. It's going to change things, but we're going to be okay. And my husband was pumping me up. He's, it's okay. We can handle MS. We can do this. So we were confident we could face this. We're sitting in that cold little room with bright lights that are buzzing. And the doctor came in and I remember it strange because he brought a student with him. And he had previously told me that he only brings students in when he feels that they can really learn from a case. So he walks in with a student and I was caught off guard because he would not look at the doctor. The doctor would not look at me. He looked directly at my husband as we're sitting side by side in these chairs holding hands, and he uttered the words, I never dreamed of hearing. He said, your wife is going to be dead in three to five years. What? What is going on? What do you mean? We don't know what's wrong with me. MS is horrible, but it doesn't make sense. That's when he uttered this word that didn't make sense to me. He was telling us about how in medical school he learned about this ultra rare disease, one of the zebra diseases, which falls into a very tiny percentage of all diseases, and they're ones that are super rare. He goes, I was told in medical school, mind you, this was an older doctor. He was probably in his 60s, that I would never see this disease. And today I'm seeing it for the very first time in person. And then he said, There is a disease called Lambert Eaton myasthenia. It's also known as Lem's disease. That's all I was told. He left the room for a few minutes so I could gather myself. My husband and I discussed it. We had questions. We had a billion concerns. We have young children. I'm in my mid-30s. I can't be dying. I have a first grader and a ninth grader. Are you crazy? So the doctor came back and we sat down. And of course, in a few minutes, my husband pulled up his phone and typed in Len's disease. And it came back to a group of diseases that are classified as neuromuscular, but it is a type of well a form of muscular dystrophy and it's autoimmune-based. And in those first few minutes, they were talking about phenotypes in the information we had found. And it said that there's two types. There's PQ and there's N type. If you have one type, you're gonna have all the symptoms of muscular dystrophy and the lens disease. But it's just the lens disease. If you have the other type, you have a 95% chance of developing lung cancer, breast cancer, cervical cancer, ovarian cancer, and a few others. That was why the terminal rate was so high. Only a few people out of all the lens patients, and I'm telling you, there's only a few hundred of us in the United States like less than 200. So these ones that have PQ, they die much earlier because the cancer kills them. So the doctor comes in and we're asking questions. We're going over things. And I guess I got a little cocky because I remember thinking, okay, so I have this type. I'm just going to, you know, struggle the same as I would if I had MS. And he looks at me and he says, no, we have to start cancer scans and screenings immediately. You are high in the risk category. You have the phenotype you don't want. And I was confused. I was really confused. So we left that meeting. And I remember we had to go. My husband had a work meeting right after, unfortunately. And I sat in the car and waited for him. And one of his friends kept coming to check on me because I was just told I was dying. There's no. You can never prepare for that.
0: How did you share this terrible news with your family and loved ones? Hearing somebody utter the words is one thing, but placing those words on your own tongue must be a million times more difficult. So how did you tell your loved ones and what were the reactions?
1: We left the hospital with the reality that we have children, we have families, and. We needed to tell them because our families were very involved. They knew what was going on. They were very supportive. I mean, my mother was 20 hours away, and she wanted to be there for that appointment. But I thought I was just getting an MS diagnosis. I didn't need my mom. So I left, and I remember sitting in the car, tears streaming down my face. And I looked at my husband, and I said, I can't. How am I going to tell my babies? I'm going to miss. Everything. They're little. And then reality hit. I had to tell my mom and my dad. And for many people, the thought of telling your parents that you're dying is horrifying and so hard. I had to call my father because we lived far apart. I couldn't see him in person. And I had to tell my parents that not only did they bury one of their daughters from something completely not related. But now they were going to have to bury their second child. I had guilt like no tomorrow at the thought of leaving my children, my husband, because they needed me. But the level of guilt when you have to think that your parents are going to lose their second child when they're in their 30s is horrifying. My little sister was the baby of the family. And we lost our oldest sister. Now she was going to lose me. What kind of sister was I? We left her. But we were going to leave her. So that was brutal. That was the worst. We decided to be open. I said something to my husband on day one. And we decided that that was the way it was going to be. This was going to be my story. My way. I couldn't control the lens. I couldn't control if I was going to get cancer, I couldn't control anything, but I could control me. An important part of that was telling people the way I needed to. We have this thing where bad news with our kids, we tend to sit in the middle of the bed, everyone's together, and we can all hug and be there for each other. So they kind of, they knew, the oldest knew we had an appointment that day. And he looks and he said, what's going on? And I said, well, it's not MS. And so that's good. It's different. I honestly can tell you, I didn't tell my children that I was terminal. I told them that it was really rough and mommy was going to get very sick. But I couldn't look at my seven-year-old's face and say the words, mommy's going to
0: die. What does one do when the sand of time is scheduled to run through that sand clock? One final time. I imagine it being life altering to say the least. How did your life change? And what did this do to your own priorities and the intentions you lived with?
1: In the early days, right after diagnosis, obviously I had made the decision to make it my story my way. And to me, that was very important because I wasn't going to let my disease control me. I really stepped back and I looked. At that time in my life, I had two young children. My husband, I, and our children were volunteering regularly, helping homeless families and supporting them. So I had the perspective to look at life from different angles and different perspectives. And I realized that we never know what's going to happen in life. We don't know what tomorrow is bringing us. So I was going to live every moment to the fullest. I became very involved, even more so in, you know, making sure my children had what they needed set up for themselves. People laughed because I would go and, I mean, I had bad days where I couldn't walk, but I would still try and do what I did before because... I was not going to take this sitting down. We started looking at options because again, in this first doctor's appointment with the diagnosis day, we were not given any options for treatment. We were told that treatment for this disease is extremely limited and extremely expensive. (laughs) What I didn't know is that they weren't joking. So, you know, we just, we started looking at options We discovered that we only really had one that was available to me because of I was having seizures and everything else. So Mother's Day weekend, I started treatment and it was the most difficult five days. What their plan was, was a five day on board. I would go to the clinic for five days in a row for approximately four to eight hours. And I would receive high doses of steroids followed by IVIG. And the goal was to try and make it so that I would have less symptoms and be able to live. What people didn't warn us was that this treatment was extremely hard on my body. We had no idea what was coming. I was losing, honestly, I lost half of my hair that in those treatments. It was brutal on my body. I gained weight. I couldn't walk. Stefan, you were there in my life at this point. I would go to events with you and I would have a walker and I would sit while we were handing out food and items to families. I didn't care. I was not going to let this disease win. I needed to show my children that I tried. I tried to live for them and I tried to push through and I wasn't going to give up. Don't get me wrong. The first days, there were many days I I wanted to give up. But how do you give up when you're a parent?
0: People often talk about bucket lists. Did you have one of those before the diagnosis or did you make one after the diagnosis? If so, what was on it?
1: So for me, it wasn't so much of a bucket list that I made in my head. I was blessed early in diagnosis. I had told one of my friends and she came at it from a perspective. I didn't think of, she sent me two leather bound books and they were blank. And they have over the years become each book is for each of my child, each of their own. And they're where I wrote things down and I told them things and I left them messages. And in doing that one day, I realized something I can leave them. All of these memories written down, and messages, and notes for your graduation day, the day you get married, and the day you hold your baby for the first time. I can do that, and I'm going to do that, and I did, but how is that going to help my family? And my family, I don't really mean my children and my husband, my sister, my parents, his family. How is these letters going to change my family's experience now? It's not I had to change me in the now. We pushed harder. I was doing at the time, we were doing work with homeless families in the area, and I had taken on the full time job myself. My daughter wanted to, years before, help children who didn't get Christmas. So we were helping these families, and I realized that my legacy to my children was going to be. Continuing this, so many people told me to step back when I got sick, and I pushed harder. And I'm excited to say that that next Christmas, I mean, in total, we helped over 150 families. And it was the determine the determination that was brought from this disease, because I'm not going to make a difference when I'm gone. Ten years from then, if I were gone there wouldn't be a difference made. But if I kept pouring into what I'm doing and teaching my kids that just because my outlook has changed, doesn't mean I can stop being the person that I want. And that was the person that cared about others. So we kept pushing. We We did more with our children. We found more joy in the little things. And people think it's so funny, but If you have a spouse, I'm going to tell you, you're having a bad day. Turn on the music and dance in the kitchen. I can't tell you how many nights we danced through our tears in our kitchen. Because that's all we could do at that moment. But I wasn't going to sit down. I fought. I traveled to doctors. I did treatments. Those people that know me were watching me as I was getting worse. And I was okay, though, because I was still having the moments. I moved things, you know, maybe I won't see my child do this. So instead, I found other memories that I could make sooner. I mean, we lived in Panther territory. So we went to events for our Panthers football team, which my children love. We went to more concerts. At that point in my life, my husband and I enjoyed concerts as our thing for date nights. And we started bringing our children because I wanted to live with them as hard as we could in the moments we could.
0: How do you live now? Obviously, you're still here. Thank goodness. What is your prognosis today? And what has changed in your life since that first day when you found out about the disease?
1: I worry more about the little things, the things that matter. It doesn't matter what you're doing, where you're going. It matters who you're with. It matters who you choose to spend your life with. I mean, you and I have discussed this and being a parent and being a wife has been the greatest blessings in my life. And I just kept going with that. And I've decided that, I changed my perspective. I don't yell at my kids because their rooms aren't clean. I coddle them and help them clean it or clean it for them. I've just discovered that the little stuff is just stuff. It doesn't matter. The things that matter in life are the people, the relationships, and the actions we take as people. I've moved forward. So, in all of this, I was really sick when my husband's job decided to move him to another state. So we actually left where we were living and where we obviously met you to move up north. And that's kind of where life, what we didn't realize that when we made that move, he only took that job and made that move because he was hoping to find better doctors to do a better job because I was dying and there's no way around it when COVID hit this country, I was very sick. I couldn't leave my house because I couldn't risk getting COVID because what would that do to a person with limbs? We didn't know. So now I'm actually doing really well. I'm excited to say that I haven't had seizures in a while. I have a walker. I use it when I need it, but I don't need it every day. I have issues, but they're less. We found out that actually the heat and exposure to mold in South Carolina was what was killing as fast as it was. So removing myself from those things and moving to a colder climate actually helped my body start to repair itself in minor ways. So do I still have this diagnosis? Will I always have this diagnosis? Yes. Will I always have this sand clock running in the background, never knowing exactly how much is left. Yes. But over the last few years, that means less and less to me. Because the more time I focus on the countdown, the less time I'm living, the less time I'm loving. And that's important to me. I've become very active in my community with my own family. We've found different organizations. And it's funny because most of these people don't realize that I have issues. I was at an event and I had tripped and the woman goes, oh, you know, clumsy. And I'm like, yep. And my daughter was quite concerned and showing that concern. And I'm like, it's okay. And she goes, why is your child so concerned? And I had to explain that we have the trauma of knowing things, but because we want to live Most people don't know what we're facing because you can't live when you're being held down by the diagnosis. I had to push past the diagnosis. I had to push past everything and realize that they were just limiting my life. They really were because I couldn't see. I couldn't see these things that I had hung up so much time and so much energy on, like watching my son graduate. And I am thrilled to say that last June, the first thing that was on my bucket list was crossed off when I watched my son walk across that stage and got his diploma. My bucket list wasn't going and doing all the things and, you know, meeting Mickey Mouse and skydiving. And my bucket list was things and moments and experiences with the people that meant everything to me.
0: Jen, thank you so, 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 very much for sharing your story with us today. Now, if somebody wants to reach out to you, perhaps somebody who is dealing with their own diagnosis, somebody who has experienced homelessness, somebody who just very much relates to you and your story, is there a way for them to get in touch with you?
1: I am on TikTok for anyone that wants to reach out, that my story has resonated them with them in some way. I am on TikTok it's mom and me 2020 my tiktok isn't very active right now i'm not gonna lie i'm working on that but i would love if my story resonates with you if you want to have a conversation with me reach out i'm here so i will be on tiktok if you need to find me at mom and me just reach out if my story resonates with you if you want to open a discussion I'm available on TikTok. If you cannot find me on TikTok, you do not have TikTok, or you're just not comfortable on there, you can reach out to Stefan. He is a dear friend, and he will make sure I get the messages and a way to communicate.
0: Thoughtvolutionists, what a story, what an hour. I cannot begin to describe how beautiful and special it feels that out of the little time she has left, Jen chose to give us this hour. I will forever be grateful for this conversation and for the fact that Jen is reminding us all of some key lessons her own life taught her. So allow me to sum up some of those lessons. Be kind to the people you see in your everyday lives. Perhaps choose not to ignore that homeless man holding up the sign at the intersection, asking for kindness and support. You never know what a person is going through, and you never ever know if it won't be you one day, in that very same situation, forced to rely on a stranger to see you and just help. I always carry some bags with essentials in my car. Hygiene items, non-perishable food, warm socks. So that way I can help somebody in need. It is such an easy thing to do. The second lesson is an extension of the first one. Live. Live now. Look past the little unimportant things and don't put off living any longer. We really do not have any guarantees in life. And the realization that you may not be there tomorrow, a week from now, three months from today, who knows? So please live. Live a life of kindness and gratitude for life itself. Don't hold yourself back because of what other people might think or because you fear the uncertainty of possible outcome of a big decision. Guess what? Life is uncertain. Don't fear it. Live it instead. I'm still working on that because I know how easy it is to get sucked into duties and responsibilities, and there most certainly is a place for that. But you can choose to live responsibly and without the shackles of a life that is just passing you by every single day. If you would like to help Jen and her family in this time of need as they continue to fight for every single day of a purposeful life, please check out the Linktree link in the show notes. I know how much Jen appreciates you. And if you don't have the resources, but want to leave Jen a note, please contact her via TikTok or get in touch with us. Thoughtvolutionpodcast.com is the website. That is thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. This is also where you can find the intake form to become a guest of the show yourself. And I cannot wait to hear from you. Please, as usual, like comment and subscribe. You can find us on all major podcast apps, YouTube, TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Thoughtvolution. It would be a joy to connect with you there. And as you are aware, we also have a merch store with inspiring and cute and inclusive hoodies t-shirts, hats, and so much more. So please give it a look. It helps us out and it means a great deal to me. It's time to wrap this up for this week, but make sure to tune in next week for another episode. And until then, I love you Lotzis. Please live a life full of purpose and intention and always, always, always be kind to each other. Thank you. Y'all are amazing. Truly amazing.